Go ahead and uh, take out your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to remind you to keep the women in prayer for their retreat. They're leaving tomorrow morning, and uh, that's why Sophia's here. She came to uh, be a part of the retreat, so that's a blessing, yeah. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is having to deal with a worldly church. He's having to deal with what he called carnal Christians. When Paul left, he was there for about 18 months. Um, established a church there, and when he left, the leaders that came in, they didn't follow his model. They followed the model, sort of, of the world, what they were used to. And so, because of that, sin was rampant in the church. Uh, he, he said there was envy, strife, divisions. Uh, it just doesn't sound like a fun place to be. Sexual immorality. And uh, Paul got word of it from Chloe, Chloe's household. We don't know who that is, but someone named Chloe, which could also be a uh, male as well. So that name is in that culture was uh, male or female. So, but anyway, he got word as he was in Ephesus. And uh, he, he writes this letter to them, and uh, part of it was him telling them, in a way, just they've got off track. They forgot what he talked about, and they sort of adapted their uh, church philosophy that would seem to work in their environment. So they sort of adapted what Paul said, and then they took in the worldly philosophies. It was in uh, Greece, and, you know, there's a lot of history about the Grecian Empire and the Grecian influence, and then Rome was in charge, so the Greco-Roman influence there. And so they just brought all that into the church. And the church has been fighting that ever since. It's been fighting, what, what does it really mean to be a church? What is it? mean to live as a body of Christ that gathers together as a local church in the world but not being of the world? Is it okay to adopt our own philosophies and techniques and um, have more of a, a view of, well, if the people, if we can get them to come, then that's, that's good enough. And what uh, often happens is if you're uh, a biblical church with the biblical model, it may not look like uh, you would think that it would look. It may look different than the world. It may have a different uh, paradigm of success than the world has. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look at, look at you and look how, I'm using my own words, but look how successful, look how mighty, look how comfortable you are. And look at us. We're, we're not even dressed properly. We're hungry as we speak, as we write this letter. So he's drawing this contrast that when I came, I came in a certain way and taught you a certain way. 
and now I'm hearing you've deviated for that and you're doing your own thing. And because of that, the church has lost its effectiveness. It's lost its light and its saltiness. So as he talks about that, you can kind of just sense that Paul has a, a pastor's heart in the way where he has a, a, a sense of this destructive nature of sin and he, he just, it's unsettling to him, it's upsetting to him. Just like all of you, if you saw a, a loved one in danger, you know, physical danger, it upset you, but he's seeing the spiritual danger that's happening and, and it's, it's upsetting and it's, it's moving on him to the extent where he couldn't get there, but he sent word back. This is the letter that he sent. He's, he said, if, if I have to go with the rod, I'll go with the rod, meaning I, I don't want to come heavy-handed and say, look, you need to get in order. I don't want to do that. But if you don't receive the correction and I uh, come, and, and that's what I'm going to have to do if you don't deal with the things that I'm asking you to deal with. I'd rather come and in a sweetness, in a fellowship, in a charity, in a love. And that, that's often our experience as believers. It, it's not all kumbaya. It's, it's not, this is not heaven. It's tough. It's a fight. Our hearts get broken. It's difficult. It's messy. And we can, you know, sort of isolate ourselves from all the messiness and, and make excuses about the church and say the church is this, the church is that. And, and we have an example of, yes, the church is all that stuff, but it doesn't say that we should not be a part of it. It says that we should be in there and operate in a certain way so that the church operates the way God wants it to be. It's like that proverb about um, a stall with no ox. It's nice and clean and sterile. The proverb, nice and clean and sterile. But where there's oxen in there, it's messy. But that's what the church is. But the church can never bow down to the world. And that's the pressure that's always being placed on the church. Just a little compromise. A little opening of the door to this philosophy. You know what's crazy in Texas, for example, critical race theory is not allowed in the schools, but many churches promote that. So the church is often being rebuked by the state. So that's what we're talking about here. If you don't know about critical race theory, it's I don't have time to get into all that, but it's basically, it's uh, racism to defeat racism. Just another form of race. It's a worldly philosophy. It's very simple. In the, in, in the church, there's no partiality. We're all made in the image of God. That shouldn't even be an issue. But now Paul in chapter 7, he's uh, dealing with where ultimately if we let the world into the church, it will ultimately affect marriages. Where because marriages are ordained by God, they're sacred, they're important by God, they're holy before God, they're used by God, they're instituted by God to bring forth goodness and blessing 
So what uh, marriages will be attacked. And so this is what Paul had to deal with with the Corinthians in this particular section of Scripture. And it's amazing how many believers can have a worldly mindset about marriage and divorce and singleness. It's all in chapter 7. So we need to look at this and, and see what is our guide. And you know what's interesting is this is what we use in dealing with marital issues. We, we go to chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. We go to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10. We're not going to do a deep dive in, into this. We've done that in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. In um, Mark chapter 10, um, in like right around February, March of 2022, we, we, went, we did like six messages, deep dive on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But this, this is what we use to make decisions about things. When people come for counseling, when people say, can I get divorced? Is this okay? This is what we do. This is what we use. We go to this, and this is what Paul has left for us. So with that, why don't we just uh, jump right in in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So he, he tells us what is kind of like, do you guys like Jeopardy, the game show? Anybody like Jeopardy, the game show? This, Greg likes it. <laughs> this is, figures Greg would like it. Jeopardy is, a, they ask you the question, they give you the answer before they ask you the question. So we don't know what they wrote, but they so they wrote and they're asking him questions. So that he's responding. So the first part, he was just exhorting them in the things that he heard. Now he's responding to the questions that they had. So the first thing is he's responding to this understanding of people who got saved and they were married. And because sexual immorality was so bad in Corinth, they were wondering, well, if we're married, should we stay married? And if we are married, should we refrain from intimacy in marriage? Because is it more, more holy to be celibate than not celibate? So, so he says, first of all, he just kind of lays this general principle down. It says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. What he means is it's, it's good for someone to be celibate, to be single. That's what he's saying. He says that's good. I wonder if we see singleness like that. Paul is single. Was he married before? We don't know, but... He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. And uh, to be a member of that, you had to be married. Uh, Paul, in Philippians chapter 3, said that he was blameless according to the law. And uh, 
According to the Jewish law, one of the most cursed person is an unmarried Jewish man. So probably married, but what he's saying, he, he was single now. We don't know what happened. But he's saying that's good. And I want to sort of put a, a, a banner over this chapter that will help us understand the purpose of marriage, divorce, singleness, all of those things, remarriage. If, if we understand this, then we'll understand the whole writing of the Scripture. And it's, it's the, the principle of your life is given by God for the purpose of serving God. So that takes precedent over everything. So when we start to have a, a focus upon our marriage state, our single state, our divorce state, our desire to remarried state, that, and that becomes the most important thing, then Paul is dealing with all that and getting us to understand his worldview was that our life in, in this world is to serve God, first and foremost. So if we get that, that'll help us as we go along. So he, he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It, it's good to be celibate. It's good to be single, he's saying. But then in, in verse 2 he says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, what's that? Sexual immorality is just a term for any sexual activity outside of a biblical marriage. What's a biblical marriage? A marriage between a man and a woman. So he says, because of this, because sexual immorality is such a problem. So think about how Paul is seeing something so dangerous. And as he's writing this, we, we can maybe things are coming into our mind about how sexual immorality has tainted and ruined so many lives. It's one of the biggies. If you think about just if we were to eliminate sexual immorality, just think how much better the world would be. Just that one thing. So that's a biggie. And Paul's recognizing the the problem of sexual immorality. So he says, being single, great. But because sexual immorality is such a bad thing, he says, let each man have his what? Own wife. So that you're not to be married to multiple wives. And let each woman have her own husband. What is he doing? He's setting the parameters for God-given sexual relationships. And he's giving a green light, and he's saying that there is a way to express sexual desire, and the way is how God ordained it is in a marriage between a man and a woman. And just, we can take a lot of time, we can take weeks to discuss why that is the right way to express sexual desires and all of those things. But we don't have time for that. But that's the principle. So then he says in verse 3, he says, 
Let the husband render to his wife the affection that is due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession and not a commandment. So what he's saying then is sex within a marriage should not be used as a weapon by one or the other to give or withhold to get their way. It can be used as a control issue. So you don't treat me right, you don't get this, so to speak. And he's saying that that's wrong to do that because when two people get married, they're offering themselves to the other person. Getting married is a heavy, heavy proposition because you are dying to yourself and you are vowing to put the other person's needs before yours. And a big part of that is the sexual ability that couples have where in Hebrews chapter... 13 verse 4, it says the marriage bed is undefiled. And so he, he says it's important that, that within a marriage that that's a priority and not only a priority, but it's something that a person has a willingness to do even maybe if they didn't feel like it at the moment or um, if it wasn't the exact right circumstances, but he's stressing the importance of this is my God-given way to bless the marriage and give to that marriage a way that two people can experience an intimacy that is not possible in any other relationship on earth. And so it really uh, suggests that sexuality within the marriage often can be a barometer of the health of the marriage. And so that's something he is saying to pay attention to. That's something to make a priority, to be, make it important. And so that would suggest that you make sure that you're giving time to rest and be healthy and all those things and so that you're ready and that you're wanting to do that. And, and if there's a, a, a problem, then that problem's dealt with because problems within the marriage will affect the intimacy in the marriage. And that's a sign and a warning. Of course, if unless there's a sickness or unhealthy 
person or it's, they're, they're not able to do that, that's a whole nother issue. So as he sets his priority, it's also, he's not saying that there should be some uh, forcing of one upon the other in an aggressive way. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says the husband is to treat his wife like Christ treated the church. And that's why he says he uses the word affection, to render affection. That word might be harder for a man to be tender and emotionally connected. And that's why the word don't withhold the affection from your wife and from your husband because in sexual intimacy, there also has to be the affection. That word affection means a kindness. So there's a a tenderness. There's an understanding uh, of one another when you come into that union. But he, he says that there may be a time where you both agree it has to be two people and you say, you know what? We want to take the time to seek the Lord, prayer and fasting. And he says, well, that, that is acceptable. But there, you know, there has to be a, you know, a, a time that you both agree on. It has, there has to be like a, a defined into that. You can't say I've been praying and fasting for the last three years. Sorry. <laughs> so, aren't you glad you're not me right now? <laughs> I know you're thinking that. So he says that's a concession, though. That meaning that you don't have to take time away through prayer and fasting, but if you want to do that, that's a concession. But let that be something that's just a temporary period that you both agree on. But then in verse 7, he says, I wish that all men were even as myself, single. But each one has his own what? gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. So now he's saying the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage, they're both a gift and they're both good. It just depends on the person. So if a person has the the gift of singleness and Paul's saying, for me, it's great. I wish you all could be like this, but you understand it's not everybody's thing. Remember why he's saying this. Remember why the, the banner over the whole chapter was serving the Lord, a life given to serve the Lord. So that's why he's saying that. He said, hey, for me, think about how hard it would be to be married to Paul. Think about in the book of Acts, his traveling. Think about him coming home and saying, Honey, sorry I was late for dinner. I was stoned to death, but I came alive. <coughs> and there's people chasing me, so we got to eat fast. So you have to go, you know. This... So it'd be hard to be married to him. And so he's saying, for, for me, this singleness is great. But do you see, it's so important to understand why he's saying that. It's... If you're single, how should you use your singleness? 
to serve the Lord. If you're not using your singleness to serve the Lord, but you're using your singleness not to be single, then you're going to be frustrated and potentially you're going to make a bad decision. So if, if you're single, use the opportunity, the freedom, the unencumbered situation that you're in. Use it for the Lord and you'll be fulfilled in the Lord. But if you don't use it for that, you're going to be discouraged, frustrated, and desperate. So he says in verse nine or verse eight, he says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So it's interesting because this shows you the devastating effects of sexual immorality. And if, if you're saying, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm single, I've, but I don't have the gift of singleness. Well, if you're single and don't have the gift of singleness, you have the grace for your temporary situation not to fall into sexual immorality. So you may say you have the gift of temporary singleness. But he's saying if if you're sort of wired, even if you have these big desires to serve the Lord, which we all should, and we have given our life to serve the Lord, but we de desire, and maybe we think we're more the type of person that does better with another person, he says, praise the Lord. But then the question is, so what should I do about that? Pray to the Lord. Your singleness is a preparation for your marriage. And if God has it for you to be married, then He will take care of that. That's His responsibility. Remember in Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that He's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what that means is He's already laid out the plan that He has for our life, and if that's on the path that He has for our life, then He will take care of that. How did the first marriage occur? Adam was put to sleep. And God knew his need, and God brought his need to him. And he woke up, and he said, whoa, man. And that's how we got women. That is the corniest. I try not to say that in weddings, because I've heard that so many times, but I couldn't help it. But there's a point. There's a principle to that. It's important. So if you're single, but you don't have, if you want to be married, that's great. Praise the Lord. But while you're single, don't use all your time and energy trying not to be single. Use all your time and energy serving, worshiping, praising the Lord. Because any married person will tell you. If you're not content being single, getting married is not going to fix it. Getting married will actually bring out the things in your heart 
that God wanted to work on before you got married so that when you got married, it would be a little easier. But if you don't use your singleness for that, then it'll be more on-the-job training. But marriage is not going to fix a heart that is not content in the Lord. So if you say, if I just got married, it would be so great. And if you talk to married people, they'd say marriage can be hard. And it, that person is not God. So they can't fix that heart issue that you have. But God can. And so if, if you're single, use it to serve the Lord. And if, if God has for you to not be single, then just let Him do that. Be open to that. But in the meantime, be using your singleness appropriately. And God will prepare you for that marriage. So then in verse 16, he says, now to the married. So he's sort of answering another question. He says, now to the married, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. What does he mean by that? He means that there is scriptural precedent for what he's about to say. Previous scriptural precedent. He says, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. And so why is Paul saying that? Well, I brought the statement of intent and marriage vows that if I did your wedding, this is what you recited. This is what you vowed to God. And it's good to remember that. And if, you, if I didn't marry you or officiate your marriage, Marriage. Hopefully, this is the same thing that you said to your officiant, but really to God. So let, let us go to the statement of intent. Mr. X, do you agree before God and these witnesses to take Mrs. X or Miss X at this time as your lawfully wedded wife? So this is what somebody is promising to do before God and the witnesses. To love and to cherish her. To honor and to cleave to her. Get this. To provide for her both physically and spiritually. That ties into what we looked at. To pray for and encourage her in the ways of the Lord to live together as joint heirs of His grace, forsaking all others to keep yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live. And then Mr. X says, I do. And then Mrs. X says the same thing. So here's the vows that we do. And some people do their own vows, but this, these are 
the vows that I would do. I would say, Mr. X, do you agree before God and these witnesses to take Mrs. X as your lawfully wedded wife to love and to cherish, honor and cleave? And provide, oh, I just read that. This is the same thing, sorry. But at the end of all that, I say, what God has joined together, you, go, you know the rest? Let no man separate. So a married person has stood before God and said, this is it. There's no plan B. There's, I'm deciding at this moment before God, when I say I do, I'm, I'm saying that this is it. And that's why Paul is saying, look, marriage is not a disposable thing. Marriage is not something that a man has the ability to dispose of. Are there concessions to what he's saying? Yes, there are. Matthew 5 and 19 tell us if there's uh, adultery in the marriage, that that breaks the marriage right there. So that, that's a concession. We're going to see another concession in a minute. But the point is, he's saying, look, if you're, if you're a Christian, what does that mean to be a Christian? You say, Lord, you are my life, not my will, but your will be done. And so when we say that, we don't, have the prerogative to say, well, I'm not in love anymore. See ya. I'm not happy anymore. See ya. Or you fill in the blank. We can't do that anymore. And sure, we can talk about abuse and those things. But we can talk about all that. So there's, there's things that get a little more difficult. But in general, if you're a Christian and you said before God and four witnesses and you vowed, then that's it. And that's why Paul's saying that you, can, if you're a Christian, you can't divorce. And, and I said there's concessions. So that's something we can talk about. The general principle is that's not why you get married. Even in uh, Matthew 5, I believe it was, but when the disciples heard this, and then they're like, well, who should ever get married then? They understood what the seriousness of marriage, and they understood that in their culture, that they can just, if they didn't like their wife anymore, they can just write her a, a writ of divorcement and be done with it. They, there was no commitment. And here Paul is saying, hey, if you're a Christian, this is, this is what you sign up for. Now, when... There are marital problems. The good thing is if you're a Christian, there's a way to deal with the marital problems. And you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Word of God. And you have the desire of God for those two parties to be reconciled. But he does make a little provision here. You notice in verse 11, it says, If she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So that's what 
some people would consider separation. But it's, it's always amazing to me when two Christians or one of them or two, when they want a divorce, I always think to myself, why do you want a divorce so fast? What are you in a hurry for? Usually it's because there's something waiting for them or something that's been going on during the marriage that they're ending the marriage for. But why would you hurry? Why would you be in a hurry just to to end it? Why would you not be open to what God may want to do for reconciliation, for God to work in that situation? And so, in a lot of cases, and it's more complicated than this, and I know that, but I'm just saying in in general, in a lot of cases, it's it's a problem with the person's heart and an unwillingness to yield to the Lord to yield to counsel, to yield to God's authority. It's a rebellion. It's a rebellion against God. But with the thought that everything will be better over here if I just get rid of that person. But the Bible tells us it's never clean like that. It's never clean like that because of what marriage is. Marriage ultimately is two becoming what? One. That's never clean. That's never a seamless operation. It's, there's, there's, there's hurt. There's pain. There's repercussions. There's things like that. Now, God's grace is sufficient. And God can restore anything and everything. But still, at the same time, it, there, there is a, it's, it's not clean. And that's why God is, he, is, Paul's laying out here, is just like, there's any willingness, anything you can do. You'd be saying, don't do this. And if you do, don't get a divorce. Just maybe you need a, a time where you're not together, but don't rush in to divorce as soon as you can. And... When you're away, seek the Lord. Maybe you need to be apart a little bit to seek the Lord on your own, to get clarity, because there are so many emotions and things built up oftentimes in these situations. But then in verse 12, he says, But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say. Why did he say that? Is this uninspired no he he's what he's about to say he's saying it because there's no previous scripture for what he's about to say but what he's saying is god ordained all the same way it's just there wasn't anything particular going on in this regard specifically that was addressed in the Gospels or something like that. So now he's, he's saying a new, new thing. So in verse 12, he says, But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe. So this is another situation. So before is two Christians that were married. 
two believers that were married. Now it's a different situation. If a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So there were people in Corinth thinking, well, they were married and then one got saved. And then the saved person's like, now that I'm saved, I should not be married to this person anymore. I would be unequally yoked. And so he's addressing that situation. So if two people are married and they're not Christian, and then later one becomes a Christian, should they get divorced? And he's saying, no. If your spouse who is unsaved is willing to live with you, don't divorce. Now, that means they'd have to be willing to live with your faith. That means that you would not compromise your faith to be married. But if that person is willing to put up with your craziness, being a Christian, praying and reading your Bible and fellowshipping, if they're willing to put up with that, then don't get divorced. Verse 13, he says, And if a woman who has a husband does not believe... If he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Why? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, and now they are holy. So what is he saying there? He's saying, look, if you got married, and you weren't believers, and you got saved, and the other person didn't, you have an opportunity as a believer to affect the spouse that's not a believer. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, don't don't leave. Stay there and be a light. Be a witness. The word sanctified doesn't mean saved. It means that you'll have a purifying effect. That This tells us that a Christian household in the beliefs and the living out of the beliefs in the household has a cleansing effect, has a purifying effect, has an opportunity to bring those in the household to faith in the Lord. And children in the household, he's saying it's, it's better in, in the household for the children that there's a believer there, that the Holy Spirit in the believer is there to affect the others. But then he says, If the unbeliever departs, let them depart. Or a brother or sister, or a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God God has called us to peace. So the point is if you have someone in a marriage and they leave, then you're not obligated to stay married. This is a concession. The concession we would consider this is abandonment. If someone is married and they're unwilling to listen to biblical counsel, unwilling to heed the scripture, unwilling to submit to God, then they're an unbeliever. Or you could say they're behaving in an unbelieving way, unwilling to yield to the Lord. 
So in that case, that's what we would call a case of abandonment. If, if someone in a marriage just says, I'm out of here, and I don't care what the Scripture says, I don't care what Matthew 18 says, if your brother offends you, go to them. If they don't listen, take to others. If they don't listen, tell it to the church. If they just are hardened in their heart, and they go, then he's saying that's a concession that that, believer in that marriage that is willing to stay and the other leaves that they're free so he says let them depart and what that means is we'll see in a second but then they're free to remarry they're not stuck bound to a person that's not there the word depart means to put space in between and so it just means that they're at a place where they're unwilling to reconcile and they've left and they won't heed. They're, they're just steadfast in their position, and it's over. And so that would be a case of abandonment. And the reason that a person that would stay in the marriage is free is because God's called us to peace. He hasn't called us to live in a situation where there's unrequited love, a person unresponsive. It's almost like being married to a dead person. There's nothing there. And he said, if they leave, he doesn't say you leave. He says, if they leave, then that would be a concession to what God says about marriage. In verse 16, he says, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? That's why you shouldn't leave if your spouse is not a Christian. You are a Christian because... You might have an opportunity to see your spouse saved. Or how do we know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So that's, that's the point. You remember the banner over this whole chapter? Is that first and foremost, our life would be lived to serve the Lord. So if you're married to an unbeliever, then they're willing to stay. Then you have an opportunity to have an evangelistic ministry right in your own house. Now, the Bible says we have to be careful how we handle that, right? We don't want to nag and force Bible tracts in a bologna sandwich. <laughs> but we want to win the person by our walk with the Lord that they're able to see daily so that person can love the unsaved person in a very Christ-centered way, to blow them away by the love of Christ. So in verse 17, he says, But as God has distributed to each one, let the Lord, or as the Lord has called each one, so let them walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. So he's referring to single or married. And he's really, really tearing down those barriers about different statuses and saying he's even really, and this was against the Jewish culture, and really saying, hey, if you're single, he's elevating that status from curse to best. But he says either way it's good as long as you're serving the Lord, and that's your priority. In verse 18, he says, 
Was anyone called while circumcised? Speaking about Judaism. Let him not become uncircumcised. I don't know exactly how that would happen. But he's saying if you're called as a Jew, then praise the Lord. Don't undo your Jewishness. He says, let him not be uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God, that's what matters. So as these people in Corinth would come to the Lord, some of them were Jewish, some of them were not. And he's saying, whatever your situation is, God will use it as long as you're walking with the Lord. That's what's important, not an outward thing. And this is really, really encouraging as we go on to see that whoever, whatever, however we came to Christ, God will use that. And we should not say, because I'm not this. We'll say, for example, because I'm not single, God can't use me. Because I'm not married, God can't use me. Because I'm divorced, God can't use me. He's saying, however you came to Christ, he'll use all of that. And you don't have to be something else in order to be used by God. He says in verse 20, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Verse 21, were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. So if, you got, if you're a slave and you were called that way and you got saved as a, was saved as a slave, then God will use that. But if, if you can be free, that's cool too. Do that. But what he's saying is either way, God can use you. In verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he is called while free is Christ's slave. Then he says, you are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So that means when we become a Christian, God has bought us. That's what the word redeemed means. By his blood, we were redeemed. We were bought with a price. We're no longer our own. So what that means is, as believers, God's now our master, and we follow him, and we don't worry about changing our status or position in life because now we're the Lord's. And when we're the Lord's, he's going to give us opportunities to be used wherever we are. So he says in verse 24, Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state which he was called. Now, if you guys will turn to the book of Acts, just a couple books to the left. Acts 17. I want to show you something that I think is very helpful. So Acts 17, 26. 
says, And he, God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. You know what that means? This is amazing. That means wherever you are geographically, right now we know where that is, right? And wherever you are in the time of your life, the season of your life, he's saying God has preordained that. So, in other words, you, where you are is where God has you right now. But why? Look at verse 27. Here's the reason. Why am I going through this? Why am I here? Why is this happening? Here's why. So that you should seek the Lord. In the hope that you might grope for Him and find Him, though He's not far from each one of us. So what is He saying? Not, God has put us where we are geographically and in the seasons of our life. And if we will use and take advantage of those boundaries of our dwelling and the seasons of life to seek the Lord, we will find Him and that will be the reward. In other words, we are where we are so that God can reveal Himself to us. Another way to say that is, if we were somewhere else that God did not have for us, if we take matters in our own hands and begin to make moves on our own and live places and take jobs on our own without seeking the Lord, we may get those things, but we're not going to receive the reward, which is God, right where we are is right where God has us so that we can know Him, see Him, and find Him in a particular way. And you know when you get in a particular predicament, and you say, oh, God, help me. Now you're seeking the Lord. And God puts you there so you would do that. And if you do that, the reward is you will find him in a way that you would not have found him if you were not in that place, in that position. In other words, God uses everything. Every upbringing, every marital status, every unmarital status, every race, every social economic class, every place someone is born, even Californians. He uses all of that. <laughs> doesn't matter. If we will simply submit our life to Him and let Him work in our life. So turn back with me. So in verse 25... He says another thing. So another question. He says, now concerning virgins, that just means unmarried people. He says, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give a judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. In other words, no previous commandment here from the Lord. But he's now, now is a new one. He says, I, I suppose therefore that this is good because of the present distress. 
that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So he's saying, hey, singleness, and he's talking about the probably the pressure of the times that they were living in at that time, maybe a particular threat that was coming upon the Christian church. Paul himself was threatened all the time, but he probably recognized uh, there's a threat coming to the Corinthian church, and he said, hey, be mindful of the fact that your life is to serve the Lord, and there's going to come all this pressure, all this trial and persecution. So in verse 27, he says, are you bound to a wife or married? If you are, don't seek to be loosed or unmarried. Are you loosed from a wife? Are you single? Don't seek a wife. That's very important here. What he's saying is, don't yourself take the initiative to change your status. Let God do what He wants to do and trust Him and be confident and comfortable in His plan and His will, but you yourself don't look to change that. He says in verse 28, Even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble... In the flesh, but I would spare you. There's a lot of jokes that could happen right there, and I'm not going to say any of them. But the point is, when you're married, you have other things to take care of. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, look, me as a free person, that's how you consider himself as single. He said, Look, I have the ability to come and go. I have the ability to not have anything else distract me or take away. And see, so he's reinforcing again how a person is to use their singleness. He says either way it's good, but he's saying when you get married, there's there's other things that concern you. Verse 29, he says, I say this, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. In other words, he's saying the priority and prerogative of seeking the Lord first cannot be compromised by having a family. When you have a family, that doesn't mean that your walk with the Lord, your service and calling to the Lord now is relegated to a lower option. If you're married, your priority is still the same. It's serving the Lord. It's fulfilling His calling. It's doing what He's called you to do. And when you get married, that should not change. He says, verse 30, those who weep as though they did not weep, Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world, not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. So there he's saying the whole priority. He's saying, look, 
marriage, family, that's not the priority. The world is passing away. And so the priority is the will of the Lord and the calling of the Lord on your life. And so never take your eyes off that. And he says the reason, the time is short and the world is passing away. That's, that's why. But if you're married, that's good. If you're single, that's good. But he's recognizing if you do get married, don't change the trajectory of your walk. Don't, don't change the focus of your life. And that happens. Sometimes you see people, people they're on fire for the Lord and serving the Lord and they get married and they're out. Their whole focus goes on the family. And we're not to do that. The family is important, but not more important than God. And the family can be an idol. So when you put your family above the Lord, then that's an idol. And then everything else will be compromised. That's what he's saying. He says in verse 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. How he may please the Lord. So there's just complete, full dedication to the Lord. But if you're married, he who is married, he cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a, Oh, he's going on to a new section, but just to clarify. So he's saying, if you're married, you need to take care of your wife. And if you need to take care of your husband. That has to be important. The two main prerogatives of a husband and wife, a husband is to love his wife and the wife is to respect her husband. But there's a lot of care and nurturing and things that go on, and that's good. But hey, you know what? If you have a spouse that loves the Lord and is dedicated to the mission of the Lord, then you're doing that together. That's amazing. But if you're single, then there's not all these extra cares. I mean, he's basically saying, whatever your gift is, do that. But ultimately, the banner over all that, you remember that? It's the mission, the plan of serving the Lord. And whatever status you're in, serve the Lord with all your heart. So then he says in verse 34, it's a new thing. He says, there's a difference between a wife and a virgin, or a married and unmarried. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And in verse 35, he says, I say this for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin. So this is, he's, a man is a father of the bride or a father of a young lady. And in their culture, they had the ability 
to say yes or no. It was like more arranged marriages. So now he's talking to fathers of unmarried daughters. He says in verse 36, But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin or his unmarried daughter, if she is past the flower of her youth or if she is of age to be married, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity but has power over his own will and has no or has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin or his unmarried daughter, he does well. So it's the same principle just to the dad of an unmarried um, daughter. He's saying, as God puts on your heart to, for her to be married or not to be married, either one's good. Same principle, he's just telling the father of the daughter that wasn't married the same thing. So in verse 38... So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, but only in the Lord. Don't be unequally yoked. But if she's happier, if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So, really, really helpful information about handling some of the most important things that we have to deal with in life. And just the overall theme, I want to just finish with that, is whatever state we're in, serve the Lord with all of our heart. That's the purpose of our life. If we're married, serve the Lord with all your heart and you're married. If you're not, serve the Lord with all your heart not being married. And whatever status you're in, there's no inferior status. If anything, it kind of seems like he says if you're married, that's kind of inferior. But we know biblically who, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. We know it's all good if it's God's plan for your life. So let God fulfill is planning your life and take heart whatever status you are wherever you're from whatever you've been through God is going to use you and that will be your greatest pleasure in life that God will use you to bring about his plan and his purposes in this world amen Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. I pray a blessing on the people here and those listening online. I pray that you would encourage them, bless them, fill them with the Holy Spirit. I pray as they go, they would go and fulfill the calling that you have for them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, God bless you. Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday. Again, pray for the women and um, pray for... Sophia as well. God bless you guys. Have a great night.